0: We're coming back from a three-day weekend here at T-Minus Studios and noticed our inbox was full of stories from new space. Big development in hypersonics, interesting new progress on 3D-printed vehicles and components, and ESA's 25-year-old Copernicus program? Oh, yes. There's a new space angle there, too. T-Minus. 20 seconds to LOS address. Go for Today is June 20th, 2023. It's the opening day of the Spaceport America Cup in New Mexico. I'm Maria Varmazas, and this is T-Minus. Launch complex upgrades are afoot for Relativity Space's Terran R. Skyrora's 3D-printed engine hits a testing milestone. Rocket Lab's suborbital electron test packs a wallop. European new space startups join Copernicus. And for today's interview, T-Minus producer Alice Carruth speaks with Chief Corporate Development Officer for DeOrbit, Jonathan Firth, all about the company and their recent activities. And Alice brings us on-the-ground coverage from day one of the Spaceport America Cup in Las Cruces, New Mexico. All this and more. Stay with us. Let's take a look at today's Intel briefing, shall we? Relativity Space is ramping up preparations for the launch of its reusable rocket, Terran-R, expected no earlier than 2026. The company has filed a permit to upgrade Launch Complex 16 at Cape Canaveral Space Force Station, moving away from the Terran-1 program. Relativity plans to construct additional facilities, including a larger hangar and new tank farm areas for storing liquid oxygen and methane. Initial upgrades could begin as early as this year, underscoring Relativity's commitment to the Terran R program. Skyrora, the Edinburgh-based rocket company, is taking significant steps towards its first commercial orbital launch using a new 3D-printed engine. The firm is conducting full-duration tests on the engine, produced by its new, more efficient and cost-effective Skyprint 2 machine. Skyrora aims to conduct orbital launches using its Skyrora XL vehicle, from the Saxevoord Spaceport in Shetland, pending approval by the Civil Aviation Authority. The new engine features an improved cooling chamber, and each test will run for 250 seconds, mirroring the duration of a real mission to reach orbit. And we teased this one last week with some reporting from the rumor mill, and we're happy to report now that on Saturday, Rocket Lab successfully launched the first suborbital variant of its Electron vehicle, Called Hypersonic Accelerator Suborbital Test Electron, or HASTE, from the Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport on Wallops Island, Virginia. The payload was the first suborbital testbed vehicle for the Multi-Service Advanced Capability Hypersonic Test Bed, or Mach TB. The program is a direct response to the Pentagon's increased focus on hypersonics development, and was awarded to the LIDOS subsidiary Dynetics. The Mach TB program is tasked with designing an experimental glide body for a series of hypersonic capability tests. The standard Electron vehicle has undergone minor modifications for Haste, which can now carry payloads of up to 700 kilograms for suborbital tests. The Haste missions will only launch from Wallops, and Rocket Lab aims for 15 Electron launches in 2023, including both orbital and Haste missions. Now, this next story might not sound like it's related to new space. Oh, but it is. Now, I'm a big fan of the Copernicus mission, Europe's Eyes on Earth. Some interesting news about the European Earth Observation Satellite Program today. ESA announced that nine new satellite data providers, representing Team New Space, are now part of Copernicus. They're the first European new space companies to be a part of Copernicus, and they're going to be part of the Copernicus Contribution Missions, which already have over 20 privately-owned satellite missions in its cohort. The nine new space constellations will be filling in some informational gaps from ESA's Copernicus Sentinels and add new multispectral, hyperspectral, thermal-infrared, and atmospheric composition data to the Copernicus program in hopes of more effectively monitoring climate change impacts and to help businesses make smarter decisions to improve their own sustainability practices. And as this data is part of the Copernicus program— the data will be free and open for all to access. The new space companies from around Europe adding their capabilities to Copernicus are Aerospace Lab of Belgium, Promethe and Absolute Sensing of France, Endurosat of Bulgaria, Kuva Space Oi of Finland, Constellar and Aurora Tech of Germany, IceTech Tech and Satlantis of Spain. And one additional shout out to Copernicus today— The satellites from its Sentinel-5P mission kept an eye on carbon monoxide emissions over North America from May 1st through June 13th this year. And that's because, if you weren't aware, Canada has had a horrible spate of extremely destructive wildfires across the country during that time. No surprise to those of us living in the upper United States and in Canada who have been dealing with the poor air quality lately. Sentinel-5P satellites mapped out the carbon monoxide concentrations during the wildfire's And it shows pretty dramatically how poor air quality from fires, even high up north in British Columbia and Alberta, just kind of sweep down all the way to the southern United States. We've got a link to the incredible imagery in our show notes. It's definitely worth taking a look at. And now a story from the rumor mill about an establishment space company, so to speak. Reuters has an exclusive story today saying that Ball Corporation is exploring, selling its aerospace unit for upwards of around $5 billion U.S. dollars. Now, Ball has been a major partner in NASA and NOAA missions for quite a long time. Not a big surprise that a company that works in glass is the go-to partner for the optics in massive telescope missions like Hubble and Webb. So why sell? Well, Ball is over $9 billion in debt, And while the aerospace work itself is steady cash, it doesn't bring in as much as you'd think. It earned ball $170 million in 2022. So selling off a $5 billion plus asset would put a big dent in that $9 billion debt. According to the Reuters exclusive, interested buyers include private equity investors as well as BAE and Textron. On the plus side, if the aerospace unit is sold off, We'll finally see an end to those tired old headlines that go, Ball? You mean the company that makes mason jars also does space telescope stuff? Unless you like those headlines, of course, in which case, I'm sorry. And now for some news from our international desk. The Swedish Space Corporation and the Swedish Royal Institute of Technology have partnered with Colombia's National Space Program. The collab aims to bolster Colombia's space operations which include rocket and satellite missions, satellite ground station development, Earth observation, data analytics for climate research, and applications in AI and cybersecurity. Sweden's contributions will draw from its 50 years of experience in space operations, including its global network of satellite ground stations, and we hope for Colombia's sake, their unequaled expertise in meatball engineering. No intel yet on whether the satellites will be delivered as a flat pack. Saudi Arabia has introduced a scholarship program for students pursuing advanced degrees in space-related fields at the world's top 200 educational institutions. The scholarship aims to fulfill Saudi Arabia's aspirations in space exploration, aligning with the kingdom's Vision 2030 policy, a set of economic reforms intended to reduce economic dependence on oil by investing in various high-tech sectors, including space. This move follows a growing trend of increasing interest in space exploration among Arab nations, with countries like the UAE, Oman, and Bahrain also taking active steps toward developing their own space programs. Now this next story is near and dear to my heart. The European Space Agency, on behalf of Greece's Ministry of Digital Governance, has kicked off an initiative to bolster Greece's budding space industry. Seven CubeSat missions, led by small and medium-sized Greek companies and universities, are in development to provide secure connectivity, telecommunications, and Earth observation services. The first missions include DouthSat-2, which will detect marine contamination and monitor agriculture, EMTech, which will support cartography, agriculture, and land use monitoring, Hermes will demonstrate space-based 5G IoT communication services, MICE-1 will track shipping in the Aegean Sea, OptiSat will validate an optical communications link. It will also demonstrate the use of cognitive cloud computing in space. Peaksat aims to demonstrate secure connectivity. And Phasma, which is a three CubeSat mission, will use RF monitoring to provide space situational awareness. Development is in progress, with design reviews scheduled for this summer and final acceptance review due within 18 months. Now, the ground station wars continue. The Libra Group has announced its entrance into space infrastructure, establishing itself as the world's first company offering satellites, spaceports, and other core infrastructure on lease. Under the new arm Space Leasing International, Libra's initial investment includes setting up a ground station in the Alaskan Arctic, catering to polar orbits vital for climate change monitoring, and plans to construct 20 more stations worldwide over the next three years. The first assets will be leased to U.S. satellite company RBC Signals. And finally, we've included four additional stories in the selected reading section for you to peruse. The first is from Breaking Defense, and it takes a look at the bad neighborhood orbits created by debris from ASAT tests. The second's from the New York Times, all about the mystery of space law, a topic we've covered multiple times with our friends from Aegis Space Law and Michelle Hanlon from the University of Mississippi. And the third is a piece from Forbes about the burgeoning space race among major telecom providers. And finally, a fun one for you all about not astronomy, but gastronomy, a.k.a. space food. You can find those links in the show notes as well as links to all of today's stories. That concludes our intel briefing for today. Stay tuned for T-Minus producer Alice Kruth's interview with Deorbit Chief Corporate Development Officer Jonathan Firth, coming up next. Hey, T-Minus crew. Our audience is growing rapidly, and that's a big thanks to you. If you're just joining us, be sure to follow T-Minus Space Daily in your favorite podcast app. And also, do us a favor if you could. Please share your favorite episodes on social media. It helps professionals like you find the show and join the crew. You can find our social media profiles in the show notes and at space.n2k.com.
1: The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business.
0: Our guest today is Jonathan Firth. Chief Corporate Development Officer for D-Orbit. He spoke with our show producer, Alice Caruth about the company and their recent activities. Here's Jonathan explaining D-Orbit's mission.
2: So it's a good, a good place to start. So um, we are the global leader in the in-space transportation and logistics market. And we've been growing a fleet of orbital transport vehicles since September 2020. So what does that mean in terms of the problems that we solve for customers? It means moving uh, goods, satellites and information and data around in space and maybe one day people as well. So. The precise deployment of satellites um, means that they'll be in operation quicker for the customers. If they're a commercial organisation, they'll start earning revenues quicker. Uh, we can host new technologies on board our um, orbital transfer vehicle so that they can be tested. Not only, you know, so those companies can prove the performance for themselves, but they can demonstrate to investors and board members and stakeholders, you know, that they're making progress. And we also have added and have been working with Amazon Web Services, um, a computer processing uh, capability. So establishing the cloud in space, uh, which has been something we've been working on over the last uh, year or so. So from an investor point of view or from a business point of view, um, what we do is launch an orbital transfer vehicle. And it has the capability to deliver satellites to orbit. But then once it's in orbit, it's going to be there for the next few years. And it has several tasks that it can do, uh, hosting payloads, uh, the, the computer processing and, and a range of other things that will continue to earn revenue uh, over time.
3: So you guys are based in Italy, but are you only focused in the European market right now?
2: Uh, Not at all. Uh, A lot of our customers are in the United States. So, as you say, our headquarters and production centre is in Italy. Um, We're near Lake Como in Lombardy in North Italy. Um, Our UK company is based at Harwell, and that's particularly focused on the cloud um, business line. Uh, We have a Portugal company that's located in Lisbon, and that's mainly focused on our mission control software and how how we can make that into a business, and we have a small commercial hub in the United States on the East Coast, and you know in the future that's certainly um, you know one of the markets that we want to grow in.
3: So I see Deorbit comes up quite a lot when European Space Agency is talking about contracts that have gone out. How important are those contracts for helping Deorbit grow and develop as a company?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, European Space Agency ESA have been you know, supportive to the European ecosystem generally, including to deorbit, And we've been working with them for a number of years now, you know, as many, um, you know, young American companies work with NASA and, you know, the equivalent in all the different geographies. So in the case of the European Space Agency, we've just won a contract, uh, an Earth observation um, project. So it's satellite as a service. It's using the capability of our satellite carrier in space to do jobs, you know, for customers, be it uh, in this particular case, Earth Observation. But, you know, similarly, they can do telecoms, Internet of Things, uh, navigation, um, synthetic aperture radar, you know, various, various uses. And so that's with the Italian government and also with ESA as the partner. And also we have a cloud project that's just been awarded and signed uh, with ESA also, um, so that's establishing um, intelligent nodes in space, you know, because each satellite carrier that we launch is a node on this network of, you know, cloud um, data processing in space, edge computing on each vehicle, but then the, the whole sum of parts coming together as a, as a cloud service.
3: So you guys obviously don't provide the launch vehicles. You tend to go up with the Ariane 5, I believe, so far. And I believe you're part of the latest Ariane 5 launch that's coming up. And it's your fifth tug mission this year?
2: Uh, Well, in fact, we have launched with Ariane. Uh, So our first Iron satellite carrier was carried into space in September 2020 um, by Ariane. But in fact, the latest mission is with SpaceX. And we've been doing a lot of our launches either from Florida or California, um, over the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, we've established a good working relationship with with SpaceX and quite a number of the customers that we're flying. You know, their satellites are coming from the US and so they can be integrated at our facility on site. Um, they don't have to go all the way to Italy to get put in our carrier to get all, taken all the way back. Um, so, yes, as you say, this is uh, the 11th mission of the satellite carrier since the first one in September 2020, it's our fifth one of 2023 so far so we we're going at a rapid pace and it's got a whole range of uh, you know it's, it's it's typical really in in terms of the different customers that we're carrying uh, and the types of technology that they're putting into space or testing uh, it covers you know it covers a range of different types of customers with traditional aerospace and the new space companies who in some cases are still testing their technology to raise funds, you know, to close their business case. And uh, also government and institutional customers as well.
3: So tell me a little bit about what attracted you to deorbit and what your role has really developed into. What's it been like working for them?
2: Um, It's been great. I mean, I really enjoyed my time working in the States. I was there for nearly five years. And then when I decided to come back and work in Europe, um, you know, there were various companies that I spoke to. And the thing about DealBit that really sort of captured, you know, they were at that early stage. There were 60 people at that stage um, just about three and a half years ago. And they were developing, you know, their technology on a very lean basis and, and you know raising very little funding you know com- if you compare it you know with the equivalents you know size organizations in the US for example or in other markets and i just saw this really um, the the potential of the technology you know to to solve you know different problems you know it, it, they were really sort of market focused and really thinking about uh, what customers needed, established, you know, satellite operators, be it in geostationary orbit or in low earth orbit, uh, but also the new organizations that were coming along. So they, the way they developed the company was not by raising a lot of money, it was by identifying a market that they could service, you know, making revenue there and it, that enabled them to move along and and widen out in, in as the market expanded. So it was that sort of pragmatic commercial approach that I really liked and you know international as well so continuing to um, work with people in the US but also in many other countries around the world uh, was you know I've been just today for example I've been speaking to people in uh, North America Asia the Middle East you know and that's that's a typical day really so you know there, there was that as well It was an opportunity to apply my experience as well. I've gained some experience and some knowledge, and it was an opportunity to apply that. And I really liked the roadmap that they had sort of identified, um, you know, for the future. it, It was not sort of pragmatic, you know, it must be this way. It was pragmatic in the sense of this is how we think it's going to develop, and, you know, we'll use this roadmap as a filter to see, you know, if we're on the right track, and then if the market changes, you know, we can flex with it.
3: So you sort of touched on it a little bit earlier in our conversation, and I know your background is in human transportation. What is Deorbit thinking about when it comes to possibly taking humans to space in the future?
2: I think, you know, that's for us, that's some far, you know, way off. Um, But, uh, you know, I wouldn't rule it out. But, you know, the thing that we're focused on at the moment and the things that we see coming next are, you know, what occupying most of our efforts. So having established the transportation business, and, you know, that being operating now for nearly three years, and then adding that layer of services that we can provide once our satellite carrier is in space, we can combine all of that. We've proven a lot of the technologies uh, that allow us to play in a a market that's just developing now called in-orbit servicing. And so you often hear about active debris removal as being an element of that. But from our point of view, It's also, you know, the many satellites that are already in space and the many satellites that are going to join them in space will need, over time, will need some sort of, if you want to call it a roadside assistance type of service. So they'll need rescuing, they'll need repositioning, refuelling, close inspection, we'll need to rendezvous and dock, you know, with some of them. And we can provide that roadside assistance service And a lot, you know, probably about 80% of the technology that uh, is required to do that has already been proven, you know, on the the many missions that we've now done in space.
0: We'll be right back.
1: And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in sassy and zero trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go
3: This is Alice Caruth, t minus Space Daily producer, and for this week, roving reporter in New Mexico. I'm covering events at the 2023 Spaceport America Cup, the world's largest student rocket engineering competition. The teams have all registered their participation in the event, which opened today at the Las Cruces Convention Center. Judges are marking the teams on their engineering knowledge, safety standards, and in some cases, their payloads. So we're going to start off there, and sounds good. Good. This is the final day to evaluate their rocket designs before going out to Spaceport America to launch the vehicles.
1: Hello, this is Chris Lopez, director of site operations at Spaceport America. You know, this competition is really a symbol of what the, the next evolution is for the industry. Spaceport America was created to grow the spe- commercial space industry in New Mexico. And this this competition really is just one small part of that, showing the next generation of business leaders, of inventors, of innovators. Uh, and so this competition means a lot to Spaceport America because it helps grow the industry. But it's also future folks that may start businesses here in our region.
3: Eichel's helped with some of the teams to find out about their rockets.
0: Hi, I'm Julia Bowden. I'm part of the New Mexico State University rocketry team named Atomic Aggies. I am one of this year's recovery leads. One of the things I'm most excited for is to see our rocket hit Apogee and see our parachutes come out. I think everyone else is looking forward to our payload, which is a rover that'll be depositing green chili seeds.
3: Oh my gosh! 116 teams, over 1,600 participants are representing 20 different countries as part of the competition this year.
0: My name is Marcin Jaśukowicz, I'm from Team 27, Simle Simba from Gdańsk University of Technology in Poland. We're coming all the way from Europe, it took us a long way and uh, we're happy to be here. We, uh, we are flying at uh, 10,000 feet, also known as three kilometers altitude, and uh, we are flying a hybrid rocket engine, uh, which is uh, student research and
3: designed by us. The team from Chennai, India told us why student rocket groups are important for their country.
0: Uh, I'm Ishan Mankodi and I'm from IIT Madras. In India, we feel the regulations are still not yet there. Uh, Our space program was uh, only very recently privatized. If you compare it with USA, they have very uh, uh, well-established private companies. Uh, But definitely the uh, government policies as well as the student teams and universities are taking up the initiative to uh, make rocketry and model rocketry more uh, popular in India. And uh, we feel that is taking effect. So this year we have, I don't know, uh, five, four, five plus Indian teams who have been doing well in both satellite and rocketry based competitions. So, yeah, it's picking up.
3: T-minus Space will be part of the live stream of the launch days for the competition, which starts tomorrow, June 21st, at Spaceport America's launch facility. We will bring you updates on all the team's performances throughout the week.
0: And that's it for T-Minus for June 20th, 2023. For additional resources from today's report, check out our show notes at space.n2k.com. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like T-Minus are part of the daily routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, from the Fortune 500 to many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. This episode was produced by Alice Karouche. Mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester with original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Brandon Karpf. Our chief intelligence officer is Eric Tillman. And I'm Maria Varmazis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.